There's also been a creeping comprehensivization actually by conservative authorities. When they built new towns or big new estates, rather than do the expensive thing of building a new grammar school and a new secondary modern and maybe a technical school as well, they would tend to, to build a comprehensive because it was cheaper and simpler. So you've got a lot of non-political comprehensivization before, before Tony Crossland ever got going with this scheme. Hello wherever you are, hello YouTubers, like and subscribe. This is Christopher Snowden. You're watching another episode of The Swift Half with Snowden, a half hour YouTube show in which I talk to a person of interest. Not a person of interest in the Portuguese police sense, but an interesting person. And who could be more interesting than my guest this week? It is the Mail on Sunday columnist and Greenwich Mean Time appreciator, Peter Hitchens. Peter, an absolute joy to have you here. Good afternoon, as it still just about is. Indeed. Now, but I, I want to talk to you. haven't made it in the morning yet. I want, it's very bright in the morning I'm finding these days. It always is. It peeks through the curtains and wakes me up, just yeah. as I'm trying to have a line at half past nine. That's the trouble with you bourgeois bohemians. Um, you can't well, stand the door. I want to talk to you about your latest book, which yes. is, as you know, about the grammar school. It's called uh, the Revolution Betrayed. I can't, I can't forget. Which you make a very pro-grammar school argument. I have ploughed in behind you on, on the critic, uh, ever your wingman, to largely defend your position. Yeah. But it is, as you say in the book, a very unpopular position. Well, it's unpopular. It's also doomed, alas. I don't think you could now actually reinstate academic selection in British state education. I think there are too many forces against it. And also, it would be incredibly difficult to find people who are prepared to teach in schools of the kind which we've lost. I have always All capable been, of doing it, I have to say. Yeah, I've always been a, a little bit on the fence about the issue because the, as you know, the, the kind of evidence from the social sciences is not particularly uh, favourable to your, your position. Well, I don't know, it depends what, what it is you're looking for evidence for. Well, a lot of the studies that come out looking specifically at this issue, they nearly always find that, you know, either the grammar schools don't give a better education or they're, they're bad for social mobility or they're bad for inequality. And the instinctive feeling that a lot of oh, people have the, that but, they are actually good for social mobility because a lot of people the, wouldn't but, have gone to private schools. These, these, these are schools. about the rump grammar schools, the, t the tiny number of surviving A lot of them are, yeah. I don't, you very rarely see any studies of what it was like when we actually had about 1,300 in England and Wales and another quite large number in Scotland uh, when there was a national selective system. Are you, the, the rump is, is, is irrelevant to my argument because once you have a small minority of grammar schools mainly, mainly concentrated in well-off areas, then they will be besieged by middle-class parents yeah. trying to avoid the colossal cost of private education and they will be completely untypical of what grammar schools used to be like. It doesn't tell you anything. I'm interested in how they operated when we had a proper system. And in doing so, I have to concede, which is absolutely true, that the system as it was was, was full of faults, incomplete, uh, patchy, didn't really exist in some areas, was wholly inadequate in others, uh, but nonetheless was preferable to what we have now. And you make an interesting argument in the book that one of the reasons the the system became less popular was because of the baby boom? Absolutely beyond doubt. I, the, this, this was something everybody knew was coming. Uh, it was going to hit the secondary schools of the country in 1956-57. Uh, it had gone through the primary schools like a tidal wave in the years before, overloading them and, and, and putting a strain on them. Everybody knew what was going to happen and they did almost nothing about it. 
And so, of course, it became harder to get into grammar schools. The selection system became obviously more unjust because people who should have gone to grammar schools didn't get in. And so the, the, the system of selection became unpopular. The schools never did. Mm. It's a fascinating way the Labour Party put in its manifesto, grammar school education for all, which is obviously a complete lie. It's like that stupid advertising slogan exclusively for everyone. It's, it's, it's just an oxymoron. But they, they knew that the schools themselves were popular. But the selection system was not, and they concentrated on that. So the argument is there should have been far more grammar should, schools, should, should at, at least anyway. keeping up with the, the uh, population there, of school-aged There should have been anyway. I mean, areas yeah. like Wales have actually very large numbers of good grammar schools. Uh, but you could go to, uh, for instance, interestingly, Surrey, very poorly provisioned, and uh, uh, parts of the, of, of the north of England and various rural areas, you'd find they were, they were very few and far between and they were unevenly spread, and that should have been fixed. There's also been a creeping comprehensivization, actually by conservative authorities, when they built new towns or big new estates, rather than do the expensive thing of building a new grammar school and a new secondary modern, and maybe a technical school as well, they would tend to, to build a comprehensive because it was cheaper and simpler. So you've got a lot of non-political comprehensivization before, before Tony Crossland ever got going with his scheme. Now, one of the arguments I've heard from people who are not fanatically against grammar schools, but just feel it would, I, I think you, we would all agree it was imperfect, but I mean, one of the imperfections, which I, I think is valid, is that it was the people who just missed out on the grammar schools were the ones who, who really suffered under the system. So the people who were going to go into an apprenticeship, were going to go into manual work, the secondary modern suited them pretty well. The grammar schools suited the more academically gifted kids very well. But the people in the middle, some of whom may, you know, may have missed out just by, by a whisker and some yeah, of their friends I, or family may have gone. They, they were the ones who were let down. Well, of course, but no system of selection could be perfect. Uh, I would say certainly a system which was based on assessing whether you were capable of, of benefiting from a, from a ground school education on merit was better than National Offer Day when it's decided on the basis of your parents' income. Uh, but I'm not myself an enthusiast for the 11 plus. I think it was devised for good reasons. The, the people who devised it thought that they were going to try to overcome class prejudice. And it was specifically aimed at, at making sure that it, 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 it did do that. And to some extent it did, but it had other great faults. The German system, where many of the lender in, in Germany have, have grammar school equivalents, is of assessment anyway. Also, it's not totally true that the, the marginal cases were, were slammed shut and that people were told forever that they couldn't go to grammar schools. There was quite a lot of reviewing, not as much as there should have been, but quite a lot of reviews at 13, uh, by which people got into grammar schools who, at 13 who hadn't got in at 11. I would, again, I would, I would say 13 was probably a better age than... Why is that? Because people have developed more and it's still not too late. 15, 16, when the sixth form college is selected, is too late. By then, pretty much your life chances are settled. But up to 13, which of course is when the, the independent schools generally select, uh, is, a good, uh, is, is a good age and, and probably better than 11. 11 wasn't chosen for any scientific reason. It was completely arbitrary. And where would these kids go when they're th 11 and 12? If, well, if we selected the 13. Well, you, ha you, you have the prep schools going to 13? Yeah, you have, you, uh, just as the, the private prep schools continue to 13, there's no reason why primary schools couldn't do so. But I can see. Now you give a lot of very successful, the very successful private primary schools, uh, called prep mm. schools, operate till 13. I don't see its difficulty. Okay. 
Um, you give a kind of interesting, I think probably fairly novel defence of the secondary modern system, which is really the um, the one area. When people are criticising the grammar yeah. schools, often they're actually just criticising the secondary moderns. Now, firstly, because not everybody watching this will even re really know what a secondary modern is, because they've more or less disappeared. No. Can you explain what they are and why you think well, they have been rather unfairly treated? I'm very much in debt to Michael Dick Stroud, who has written a book called The Secondary Mod. He attended a secondary modern. Uh, he's not an academic. His book is not peer-reviewed or any of the other things, but it is an enormously thorough and interesting piece of work which everybody who's interested in so it should read. It's available online. Uh, you, you, you should read it if you're interested. The secondary moderns were, in many cases, the old elementary schools transformed uh, by name and no more. It was badge engineering. They, they, they didn't have any, um, any idea of what they were for for the first nine years or so of their existence. The Which would be from when, 1944? Well, 1944, when they, I suppose, really they came into existence in 45, because the Act was passed yeah. in 44. Uh, they were initially prevented from, from putting their pupils through public examinations at all. It was ridiculous. Uh, they were told they could not do it. And so there was no, there was no structure to their, their teaching. The whole idea was a kind of uh, almost sort of 1960s lefty idea that they, should, uh, that they should be free to do what they wanted to do. And it was a disaster. And an awful lot of secondary modern heads and, uh, and teachers uh, decided that they would try and overcome this. And by the early 50s, uh, they were increasingly either breaking this rule or being allowed by local authorities to break it. And they, they had begun to start taking public exams. And the, the longer Which they... Which are mainly CSEs, right? Uh, no, the CSE was devised a lot later. They would, oh. they would, they would put their pupils through O-levels and, right. and later on, to some extent through A-levels, or they would, they would send pupils across to, to nearby grammar schools to finish A-level courses. But Stroud himself, and he's, he's by no means alone, um, got, I think, um, as a physicist, uh, got into, I think it's the University of Sussex from, from his secondary modern in northeast London. And this wasn't that uncommon. Some of them were actually getting their pupils into university by the end. And this was partly a result of the bulge, where large numbers of pupils who would normally have gone to grammar schools were going to secondary moderns. They're very much maligned. There were some bad secondary moderns, just as there were some bad grammar schools, no doubt of it at all. But I'm by no means convinced, after looking at Stroud's book, that the, the general view that they were all hideous slums where, where nobody learned anything can be sustained. And as he rightly points out, this was the sort of school that most people in Britain went to between 1945 and 1965. And was this an era of particularly serious illiteracy, innumeracy or bad behaviour? I would say the chances are if you could do a direct comparison, if you could if you tardis yourself back and do a direct comparison between secondary moderns and many of the current comparisons, the secondary moderns would come out on top. What was the system like pre-war? I don't really know anything about Well, this is the problem. Pre-war, there was there, there really wasn't any any national system in England. The leading state, age was 14. State secondary right. education, yeah. yeah. And it, it was, um, I think it, it may even have been 13 for, for part of that period, but there was no, there was no proper system of national secondary education. There were patches where it existed. There were semi-selected schools called central schools in some areas, which were sort of halfway to being grammar schools. The grammar schools themselves were, were, were private schools, but local private schools. They have exactly the same roots as the, as the so-called public schools. Uh, Eton College's original charter, I think, describes it as a grammar school. But the big Clarendon public schools, which grew up in the 19th century, from the rugby example and everything else, did so by taking in boarders. 
And that's, that's what separated them from the grammar schools, which were local day schools of high quality, which the middle class pretty much sent their children to. And then suddenly these very good schools, often with centuries of tradition, uh, were open to anybody who could pass an exam. So that was the big change in in in, in forty four. That there was there was a national secondary education system. If you could pass the eleven plus, you could go to a grammar school. Otherwise, you would go to a secondary modern school. These were the first national secondary schools in England. Scotland and Wales had had a different history, but in England we hadn't had a proper national secondary system. Okay, that's interesting. So it's fascinating. Why it's did those real, grammar schools shocking too? Obviously, a lot of those grammar schools could have stayed private if they wanted to. Well, I think they, they, a lot of them have been giving quite large numbers of scholarships before the war. Uh, there had been a system under which they, they, they had done so, and they welcomed the, the peoples who came to them through scholarships. But so then what, what, what then happened, of course, was that they, they, they basically their, all their budgets and everything else became the responsibility of local authorities, and they were relieved of all that, and they could just concentrate on education. Right. It was great for them, and also they had higher quality of pupils, because instead of just taking people who could pay, right. They were taking people who were, were, were good. So what, what would be the situation, someone in Ripon, for example, I went to Ripon Grammar School, in 1935, they don't have, either have the money or, or pass the test. There was a test then, right? Or did, well, was no, it just there was, a matter of were scholarships. I mean, how people were assessed for scholarships would, would vary because right. everything was intensely local. But in you those. can't get into... I, I don't know what the case was in Ripon. Uh, well, I, I could tell you, for instance, in County Durham, which was mm -hmm. one of the first... Uh, labour, wholly controlled labour local authorities, they built grammar schools in the, in, in the pre-war era, mm -hmm. uh, in that era. They, they did in the, in, the, in the 20s and 30s what the rest of the country did in the 40s. They, they opened grammar schools. Quite a lot of labour local authorities were doing this before the Second World War. They were opening But they were schools. private too? No, they were, they were, they were, they were, funded they by were run by local authorities and, they, and the, most of the places in them were free to, I think, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this, it may be that if you if you wanted to pay for a place in a in a grammar school in County Durham before the war, you could do so. But as far as I know, they were pretty much university for the sons and daughters of coal miners. Right, and if that's you, what they were for. And if you couldn't get, they into were very them, proud of them too. Where would you generally end? Well, up? then you, the, the 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 elementary schools ended at at thirteen or fourteen, uh, depending, and that's and, and then you went to work. Oh right. Or as I say, in some cities there were as I say there were these hybrid central schools which went a bit further than the elementary schools, but there was no national system of state secondary education. Okay. Just didn't exist. It, there were patches, it, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly what the case would be in Britain because I don't But no, know, I was just using it as an example. You could, it, depending on where you live, there were, quite possibly there would be no national state secondary educational provision. Right. And then we get to the 1944 Act. Suddenly everybody has to stay at school until they're 16. Yep. And therefore, you need a lot more schools. And this well, fifty, was, I think, at that stage. I was fifty. Yeah, so. I think I, 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 I get terribly confused. I think you might be right. This is the, 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 the state school, the school leaving age goes up and up and up and up, and, and it's it's proclaimed as going up and then it's delayed. I, I'm very bad at the dates of this, but it's uh, I think it was uh, it, it it must have been fifteen because I left school at fifteen. Myself. Oh right. Um, and therefore, no, see, no, therefore six, there were new no, sixty-seven. So there were new schools needed. <laughs> There were new schools needed, so they, they, the secondary moderns filled the gap. The secondary moderns were, were, were often the, the, the elementary schools um, which had taken people after primary for a few years before going to work. They were re renamed and rebadged. Many of them were very small schools. They were not great big um, glass and concrete jobs. Though in fact, a lot of money was spent 
in later years on building smart new secondary modern schools, but a lot of them were just red brick uh, jobs in, in, in quite crowded areas with perhaps two or three hundred pupils. They weren't, in many cases, particularly big. But rightly or wrongly, the people who went to the secondary modern were portrayed as being thrown on the, the scrap. That's what people say now. About but, comprehensives uh, but, but or is, about but, secondary but, modern? No, it's, it's what the left will always... The, the left have made an industry out of saying that people who went to, to secondary moderns were thrown on the scrap heap, uh, which I think is insulting both to them and to their teachers. And if you read Dick Stroud's description of his school, I don't, it simply isn't fair. And it, his, his was just a, a normal school in, in, in northeast, in, in suburban northeast London. And most people who went to those schools didn't call them secondary moderns, they called them school. Mm. That was the school they went to. They never expected to go to grammar schools. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't surprised if they didn't go to grammar school place. That was the secondary school they went to. And uh, as I say, it doesn't seem to me, looking at Britain from the early 50s onwards, uh, that, that it was so catastrophic from the levels of numeracy and literacy at the time. And they're more or less gone now anyway, the secondary There ones. are some. So they do changes with academies they, and things like they that. They tend to be called, where they still exist, they tend to be called high schools. The name has gone uh -huh. very out of fashion. But there are some areas where there are still grammar schools, which, um, which, where there are also non-grammar schools. And high schools tend to be what they're called. They don't do, don't do particularly badly. It's quite striking. The House of Commons Library did a survey of results in the, in the key GCSEs. And it's quite interesting how the, the grammar schools, the remaining grammar schools, completely outperform everybody. But the difference between existing comprehensives and existing what, what we could refer to as secondary moderns is not as great as you might think. But the vast majority of people who don't go to grammar schools go to comprehensives now, and the comprehensives were brought in, as you say, to give a grammar school education to everybody. As claimed. And yet, people who oppose grammar schools will still say that people who don't get into grammar schools are thrown on the scrap heap. In other words, a comprehensive system now is also the scrap well, heap, but they want to send everybody to comprehensive. Well, they, they maintain that comprehensive education has been a success, uh, that it's given huge numbers of people. The argument tends to be it's given huge numbers of people qualifications they would never previously have had. Uh, they say that it's, it's, it's led to huge numbers of people going to university who had never previously gone to university. These claims are absolutely true on paper. But they're much as the, as, as the claims of somebody living in a village in Zimbabwe who says he's a multi-billionaire. He has a lot of Zimbabwe dollars, but they don't buy anything. The qualifications which are offered by these schools don't begin to compare with the, with the exams which used to be taken before the reform. Uh, and the universities which they go to don't, in my view, begin to compare to the universities which existed before university expansion. So it's, it, it's been, it, what's actually been achieved has been a huge inf inflation of the educational currency, which makes it almost impossible to make comparisons between then and now. Some comprehensives are much better than others, just as some grammar schools were better than others and some uh, secondary ones are better than others. It's in the nature of institutions that they vary. But the general level of education has, in my view, fallen. And this, the key measure of this has to be the, the GCE O-level, which, after the introduction of comprehensive schools, had to be, first of all, severely watered down. So the grades had to be altered to, to, to make failing grades into passing grades and to generally give people results which looked better than they would previously have been. And then eventually abolished entirely and replaced by the GCSE, which is a wholly different examination. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's a comprehensive examination designed for, 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 in my view, a low standard of school. 
And you argue in the book, and I found this very interesting, that this kind of this great inflation, making making the exams easier, along with the abolition of the grammar schools, was a huge benefit to the private school well, system. It, it wasn't a benefit to them, but it enabled them to sell themselves. Uh, a lot of the private schools in the era, if you read Anthony Sampson's uh, Anatomies of Britain, the series of books that he wrote in the in the early 60s, they go on and on about how grammar school pupils are storming everything, the, the, the academic world, they're, they're taking all the places in Oxford and Cambridge, they're, they're, taking, they're, they're becoming the officers in the armed services, they're becoming prominent in the civil service, they're completely supplanting the private schools and at that time, I think, is it Burley, one of the big public school headmasters said at the time, that if the grammar school revolution had continued, a huge number of the private fee charging schools would have been put out of business. People would simply have seen no reason to spend money on sending their children to these schools. They weren't that good in many cases, and, and they were expensive, and they were being outperformed by state ground schools, so why bother? But when the ground schools went, it was a huge shot in the arm to the fee-charging schools, because parents very rapidly discovered that the state comprehensives were not very good in, in, in many cases, and they, the, the easiest way out of this, if they had any money, was to pay. And they did, in large numbers. In some parts of, uh, of Scotland, for instance, the, 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 I think in Edinburgh, the numbers of, of, of the proportion of children attending private schools went up astonishingly after comprehensivisation. London as well, I think, has quite a high level. Wherever there are rich people concentrated, the numbers are high. But the schools can get away with murder because if, if you're taking comprehensive examinations and you have strong parental backing, uh, small classes, high levels of discipline, uh, Oxbridge educated teachers, you'll just, you, you'll, you'll just pull down good results all the time without any effort. And it'll look great even when it isn't particularly good. So they can, they can basically paddle uh, along and still look wonderful. I think, particularly I think their the, standards are the much lower inflation. than they were in the, in the, in the, in the middle 60s because the, the grammar schools as they were kept them honest. What's been the response from educationalists to your book? Uh, very little. I mean, by and large, my book has been ignored by, as all my books are, by almost everybody. So I, 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 I don't really know. I imagine ignoral is, is the main response I get to anything I do. Don't get reviewed. Don't get mentioned. No one. I, I used to. I, I, I used to try and get debates at my old university, York, because it used to be a very grammar school university, and. I could not get, or the organisers of, of, of these debates could not find anybody who was willing to come and, and, and contest my position. I had to, once I went up and, and, and argued against myself in a big <laughs> because nobody else would come. Yes, I, they just don't, they, they don't, they know, the, these people know. I mean, if you, you look at all the pro-comprehensive uh, people, the one argument you could, they, they really don't want to talk about is the argument about catchment area and how how comprehensive schools select by wealth yep. through postcode. Because the left in this country, they use that all the time. There are schools in North London with tiny catchment areas in which it costs huge amounts of money to buy houses and they're full of left-wing people who want good, ostensibly comprehensive, but in fact, selective education to their children. Yes. I mean, they, they don't. They know this. They know it's true, and, and they. But uh, and it's at the heart of everything that they do and say. And you, you'll find they they will attack uh, parents for spending fees, uh, and and they, they they'll attack various other tricks for um, for uh, for making schools um, in effect selective. But that one, 
they'll stay silent over. I mean, there are only, what, 166 grammar schools left. There's I, no it, prospect it, of any more being well, built. Well, it's illegal to open right. new ones. You can't, yeah. under, under the Blanket Act, it is actually illegal to open a new one. And according to various academics, you know, they don't provide a better education anyway. So why, this is my question, and the question you ask in the book, is why are these people so fervently against Why do they care so much about this relative handful of schools? I think it's, it's uh, you must know people like this. The people who can't admit they made a mistake. So you're, 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 you're with a friend and you're, you're, you're in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He, he, Asked, he suggested he, you, know, you drive down together to London because it'll be cheaper and pleasanter. You can chat as you go. And after about three or four hours of driving, you realise you're, you're halfway to Aberdeen. And you say to him, sorry, Fred, or whatever his name, I, it, the signs on the, they will say Aberdeen, we're going to London. And if Fred is a normal human being, he says, you know, you're absolutely right. And he'll pull in and find a place to turn around and go the other way. But the left in this country, if they were driving your car, they said, no. You're wrong. We're carrying on this way. They'll drive you to Aberdeen rather than admit that they've taken the wrong turning. And that's what they, they will not admit to a mistake. There are so many areas of public policy in which the left made major mistakes in the 1950s and 1960s, which on their own terms have turned out to be errors. And they will not admit it. You think that's the main reason driving I think it's a powerful you? reason, yes. An unwillingness to admit a mistake. Uh, you use the word egalitarian well, in the subtitle of your book. I, you don't think it's just fueled no, by this it hasn't rampant kind of sense of egalitarianism? In terms, it has not been egalitarian. No, no, but it's they think absolutely, it is. It, 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 this country is more divided in educational terms by money than it has ever been. The selection for comprehensives is done by parental wealth and a certain amount of, of, feigned, of feigned religion, but basically by, by methods which you can't, no one can support. Would you say that your book is at least partially a kind of Marxist analysis of this? Well, everything I do is partially a Marxist is analysis it? because I, I had a Marxist-Leninist education and I, I've, I've always felt I benefited from it. It gives you a, a clearer idea of, of how the world works and a more honest one, I think, than a lot of other analyses. And I've never, I've never regretted having it. It doesn't mean I am actually a Marxist-Leninist. No. I think it's fairly plain to any keen observer. What do you, think, he, what, what do you think Marx got most right? He was a very good journalist. That's what he got most of. He could, he could be a beautiful satirical writer if he wanted to. Um, I think that doesn't say a lot for his political philosophy. Used, well, best, it doesn't, does it? Best thing I was used, but I, a lot of the things which I used to think were were mockable in what he said. And his claim that, that, that capitalism would inevitably lead to the immiseration of the proletariat and conditions would get worse and worse and worse seemed to me for most of my life to be insupportable bilge. But looking at the world now, I begin to wonder whether he wasn't in the long term onto something. And also looking at the at, at, at various other political and, um, and economic uh, things, particularly the influence of the, of the American and a military industrial complex over foreign policy, you do sometimes wonder whether it isn't actually just as crude as the Marxists used to say it was. It's like an Eric Ambler thriller sometimes. And you look and see how the amount of money spent by the American arms industry on, on lobbying for NATO expansion, it's astonishing. But I, you know, it, it, the, <laughs> Marx, as I say, was a great critical journalist and a, and a um, uh, an entertaining and, and witty critic of society as it was, beyond that. Whether he had any serious ideas about what to do next is in 
dispute. <laughs> Lenin had very serious ideas about yes. what to do next, but those have, it seems to me, been exploded in practice. The Leninist experiment has just completely and utterly gone wrong, and that's, that's what happened in 1968. The realization in the Soviet Empire and among the Western left that that was over which then 21 years later in 1989 took solid form in the collapse of the whole thing. What do you think Margaret Thatcher got most right? I'm not an admirer. I know you're Thatcher. not. Um, I, I, as, as a person, I mean, the, the, you know, if, if one were writing an article in the old children's encyclopedia, the grocer's daughter who, who went to Oxford and became a prime minister. Went to a grammar school? The scorn, yeah. I mean, you know, despite the scorn of her... Um, of her coevals is a great story, and you have to admire it. I mean, the, 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 you know, personal courage, but I don't feel that she actually left the country significantly better than she found it. Really? No. There's not many people think that. Well, I know, but there you are. I, I think a lot of <laughs> things that not many people think, but I just, I just can't. Um, I, I, I think that John Campbell's biography of her is a is a better summary of her life than Charles Moore's, because Campbell is is uh, is, is is critical. Uh, but and knows he doesn't like her, but actually forces himself to be fair. Whereas Charles's is, I think, a little bit hagiographical. And I don't think that she had. She was a liberal, and yeah. I'm not a liberal. No, I think people always always. But forget, you're not Marxist or, or, anymore either. But you still find some some good in Marx. But I was never. But I was never a liberal. I was never a liberal. It's one thing I have not been. I'm not Marxists, ex-Marxists, and actual Marxists both would find liberalism a bit, really. Well, bit there we go. A bit, bit, we are... a bit vegan politically. <laughs> we are out of time. Oh no! There you go. Once a Marxist, always a Marxist. Absolute pleasure speaking to you, Peter, as ever. Uh, thank you for watching. Like, subscribe, donate to the IA, IA.org.uk/donate. We'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. For another episode of the Swift Half of Snowden, thank you and By goodbye. By which time you'll all have jet lag because the clock will go <laughs> forward.